The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Today I welcome private investigator and former Orange County Sheriff Lieutenant Bill Hunt to the show, and our topic is law enforcement transitioning to the private sector. A large majority of PIs have a background in law enforcement, and even though there are many transferable skills, of course, being a PI and running a private investigation agency is very different from working for any law enforcement agency. So today, Bill and I will be talking about the differences, the similarities, and Bill will share some of his experiences. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Francie. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, this is great, Bill, because I think this is a, a great topic for a lot of people. Um, so you're often approached by people from all kinds of law enforcement agencies, federal, state, and local, looking to make some transition to the private sector, as you did. And I know you've successfully mentor- mentored numerous aspiring PIs who now operate profitable private investigation businesses. So... Um, I want to hear a little bit about yourself, Bill. I know that you, I know you through the California Association of Licensed Investigators, and I right. know you've served. Yeah, I know you served as both a district governor and a district director. Now you're the association's vice president of investigative services, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And I know you. You are also the recipient of the district governor award. And but tell us more about how you got into law enforcement and how you got to where you are now. You know, I think I just, uh, like a lot of people, my dad was uh, in law enforcement. I was born and raised in Massachusetts. My dad uh, worked for the Mass State Police for the entire time I was growing up. I kind of always knew I was going to get into law enforcement, and I joined the Army in my senior year in high school, went in to be an MP, because I wasn't interested in college at that point. Mm -hmm. And I knew that, you know, you couldn't get hired until you were 21 in law enforcement, so that's a good way to kill three years and get the experience you need to... (laughs) to, you know, transfer in, see the world right. a little bit, which is what I did. Uh, and then I got out, um, and I got out in 1983, and, and back we were a little bit of a economic slump at that point. There wasn't a lot of hiring going on back in Massachusetts or in the uh, Northeast in the state police agencies, which I was interested in. And I wasn't going to follow my dad in the Mass State Police. I mean, at that point, he was the number two guy in the state police, and I was, there was just no way... I was going there. So right. I, I tested with the Maine State Police, and they're an interesting department. I, um, I came out uh, 17th out of, like, 2,000 applicants, which you think would put you in the, in the academy, but they only hired well, – I'm sorry, I came out, like, 27th, 
and they only hire like 15 people a year. Hmm. Um, but they do a two-year list. So I knew I was uh, set to the academy for the following year. Well, in the interim, a friend of mine uh, called from uh, that I was in the Army with out here in California, and he's like, hey, what do you got going on? I said, nothing. You know, I'm waiting for this position to open up. And I was a, um auxiliary police officer in my hometown in New Braintree. And it's interesting the way they do it back there. I mean, it's a part-time position, but we we were paid. So we went out on weekends, um, mm. you know, when we had town events, that type of thing, evenings, did, did patrol uh, or responded when needed. So, so you got some good experience there. Got some good experience there. It was just kind of working, uh, going to school, working security uh, outside of that and just waiting for the position in Maine to open up. And I ended up coming out here and, you know, 20, 22 years old, Southern California, and, <laughs> you know, I was addicted. And I just never went back, and I ended up getting hired by the Orange County Sheriff's Department a year later and uh, spent 22 and a half years with them. And honestly, you know, I, had, I never had any intention of being a, a PI. My goal was to, <laughs> you know, retire out of law enforcement, but like a lot of people in law enforcement, you know, things happen to them, and that's, you know, that's how I was ex- exposed to this industry. In my story, uh, back in 2006, 2005, we had a sheriff here in Orange County who was a bit of a problem. He's currently in prison. Uh, that's a problem. A bit, yeah, it's a bit of an understatement. But at that time, our department was going through some, uh, you know, some... Uh, Issues related to his leadership and we taken a reputation was taken of a bit of a hit. So I decided to run for sheriff and barely missed a runoff. I mean, literally by less than a tenth of a percentage mm. point, we missed I a runoff. I remember that. Well, the next day, yeah, yeah, he puts me on administrative leave. They do a quote-unquote investigation, determine I had violated uh, department policy by speaking out on various issues uh, with, wow. during the campaign. And, as you know, I find myself out of work. And during, this process took about six or seven months. You know, they put me on leave the day after the election. And between then and as, as that organization ran, they called me in the, the Friday before Christmas, you know, oh, to wow. tell me that they were going to do away with me. So, um, but I, you know, I kind of saw it coming. And uh, at that time, I decided, wow, I better figure out what I'm going to do. So... I knew a couple of people that had gone into private investigations. I'd never considered it, never had my own business before, but uh, started doing some preparation work. I did some research, took the test, he got everything set so that when I found myself, um, you know, out of, out of a job with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, I was up and going. And that's one thing I learned. A lot of people, like you mentioned earlier, there are a lot of people in private investigations that come from a background in law enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's easy to do that here in the state of California because the hours requirement is waived for you. So mm-hmm. all you have to do really is take the test and you're up and running. But that's where the challenges start, right? Because there are right. so many, and I learned this firsthand, there are so many uh, kind of institutional um, disadvantages if you're in government. And, you know, I, uh, when I talk to cops about this, it's, sometimes it offends them. Uh, but but sometimes they see it. And the problem with being a government employee, and I was, I was in the military as a police officer, uh, military police officer, and then I went basically right into a career in law enforcement. <clears throat> you know, sadly, you don't necessarily have to be good at what you do to keep your job 
in, in, in a government agency. You just have to mm-hmm. be competent. You know, you just have to be able to get by. Sure. And some of the things that re- are required for success, like marketing, uh, self-promotion, these types of things, they're frowned upon in law enforcement. I mean, you don't, typically people don't blow their own horn Mm-hmm. In law enforcement, you, you're, you expect that your your work ethic, your reputation, that sort of thing, will take care of you. And in many in many cases, it does. In, at least until you hit a certain point in your career. But you know, you people that are making that transition have to have to adjust to the fact that look, you could be the best investigator on the planet Earth, but if people don't know you're out there, you're not getting any work. That's right. And conversely. Somebody who may not be the best investigator in the world, but is good at uh, marketing him, him or herself, and can bring in work, is going to get the work and get the and make the money. So that's also you have true. to make that transition, and that's the hard thing. Getting people to understand that, hey, look, it's not kissing ass or bragging or mm-hmm. you know whatever to 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 put your name out there. And really, all you're doing, I mean, my my personal approach, I I don't uh, overtly market. I'm just present. You know, I attend bar associations, I, uh, I'm available, I've got a website, and when clients call, you know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily have to sell myself. I just listen to them, listen to what their problem is, and, and uh, find a solution, get it done, and let my reputation take it forward. And that's what I try to teach people. You've got to do it. And, mm-hmm. and, and cops are uncomfortable with that, you know. They, I mean, how many of us have seen the cops, they walk in, they stand at the back of the room with their back against the wall, and they're not real good at at um, poli- not politicking necessarily, but work in the room, just mm-hmm. being friendly, smiling, being present. You have to overcome those things, you know, to be in business for yourself. Well, and often, often cops are put in a position where they can't be friendly. You know, True. I mean, if they're if they're in a uh, community meeting, maybe they're friendly. But if they're out on the street, it doesn't help to be friendly. <laughs> right. Well, they're paid to look and listen, right? right. Yeah, they want to see. They want to gain and gather information and. And, and, and that's, see, that's the challenge. In that business, work comes to you, right? You come in, right. you don't have to be particularly good at it, you don't have to be bad at it, but you come in, there's a workload there for you. Uh, if there's no work today, then it's an easy day. You don't worry about it. Your paycheck's the same, you don't have to hustle. But in, in business, you do. I mean, if you don't, you know, I, I tell people you kill what you eat. So if you don't, if you don't bring in any work, you're not going to get paid. So you have to overcome that um, you know, kind of institutional um, bias against promoting yourself and going out there and getting work. And that's a big challenge, a big challenge. But on the other side, there are a lot of great opportunities for people. You know, like I've known people who've retired with a full pension. And I've gone from, you know, a guy who retired with uh, just a, a small pension. Because when I, re- when I uh, was forced out of the department, I had, you know, I had 22 years on it with a minimum time really that you could retire with a pension mm-hmm. but it it's a ha- you know the way pensions work right the, the the earlier you take it the less it is and it's that right. last five to eight years that it really increases almost 50 percent um based on the seniority in that so when i first started in 2007 when i launched my business i needed to work and you know so for me it wasn't a question you know I did what I had to do and I learned on the fly. And that's what I'm telling people. You've got to get out there. You have to overcome. Now, in my situation, I was the chief of police services for the city of San Clemente. I ran for sheriff. So during that process, I learned a little bit how to overcome some of the 
challenges with being, you know, just approachable and, and learning how to network and, and mm-hmm. not be intimidated by that whole process, right? Right. But there are people, you know, some guys retire and they're great investigators, but they don't, right. they just don't understand how important that is and they're uncomfortable with it. And a lot, I find, unfortunately, a lot of these guys and gals, um, they get frustrated you know, they set up their business, they expect work to come to their door, it doesn't, and you don't hear from them for, for a while, and the next time I talk to them, you know, they're working security for, you know, $25 an hour, and they think the PI world is, quote-unquote, BS, because they couldn't mm-hmm. get any work, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, but the advantages for somebody in law enforcement, I mean, if you retire with a full pension, then you don't even need to work full-time. <laughs> right. So you can pick and choose, right? You, you could specialize, say you're a a traffic investigator, or you worked homicide or gangs, and you wanted to do expert testimony. You know, you could pick and choose your cases. You can, you can, where, where can you go in this economy? I mean, I've been in business since 2007. We've essentially been in a in a economic depression since then. Correct. Correct. But where can you go? And starting out of the gate, charge sixty five, seventy five, one hundred and twenty five dollars an hour. Uh, for, for, for your services. Well, you that's can right. do that in this industry, and that's what I tell people. You, to, you, you know, you can make a living, and you can, and if you're coming from law enforcement, there's various ways you can do it. You can start your own business and try to create a, a big business with employees and, 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 and have a whole big company, like, you know, develop the next Kroll International or Andrews International, something like that, or you can do what I've done, which is kind of a micro-business where you where you handle what you can yourself and then sub out uh, to others what you need to. Mm-hmm. Or you can just work the listserv. You know, our, uh, Callie, you mentioned earlier, our association has a great uh, network where people are, that are looking for help um, post opportunities for jobs. And a lot of people coming from law enforcement who don't necessarily need to rely on uh, or don't want to uh, deal with the hassle of marketing and developing mm-hmm. their own business, then they can work as a subcontractor, and there are a lot of people I know who work very successfully and make good money just working for other PIs, picking up surveillance gigs, um, process service, doing interviews and reports, whatever needs to be done locally as it comes available. That's absolutely right. There's a lot of people that do exactly what you're saying. So, so what was the hardest thing for you, Bill? What you know the hardest. Uh, I'll tell you what the hardest thing for me, and this is one of the areas that uh, that that I really try to hit on when I talk to people on training is the. You know, when you when you work for somebody, and this applies. I don't care where you work. If you're working a job, you come in and do your job, right? So you got X amount of time that you owe your employer per day, and you come in and your work load is what it is, and you do it, and you go home, and you can turn off. And, and relax and not worry. the place could burn down for all you care, right? <laughs> it's, it's not your responsibility. Right. But when you run your own business, you don't have that luxury. I mean, it's, right. it, it, there's something going on all the time. And, you know, for me, the challenge is um, setting parameters, work parameters. You know, you're only going to work so much a day or, you know, you need to take time off periodically. Uh, you know, you set aside your weekends, set up structured hours, that sort of thing. So that's one challenge is how you're going to manage your time and, and, and work. And that's, you know, some people that have problems getting work, uh, mm-hmm. they're not marketing enough. Other people like I've, you know, knock on wood, my challenge has been keeping up with the work. I, yeah. It just, it always seems to come in. And so how do you manage that? 
still uh, manage to take care of your, you know, your other personal responsibilities and obligations with your family and so on. And then the other big challenge that you don't have to deal with when you're working for an employer, government or otherwise, is chasing money. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's exactly big, right. One of the big challenges is how do you manage your accounts receivable, understanding it, understanding fundamentally that business is, operates on cash flow. It's, it's the lifeblood of business. And if you, you know, if you don't take money in, and you've got to teach guys right, and gals, hey, get a retainer. Get your money up front. Getting them to understand the value of what they offer. You know, if you come from law enforcement with 10, 20, 30 years of experience and uh, they don't understand how to value that sometimes and they feel like, well, really, I can charge this much for, you know, uh, a background check or this much for uh, expert testimony. And they, you know, they have a hard time wrapping their head around how to market themselves and then asking for money. You know, it's difficult. I'll tell it's you, this difficult. It, it is difficult. It's hard. It's one of those things you may never get, uh, you may never be comfortable with, but you have mm-hmm. to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. I tell people, listen, this is not a hobby. It's a business, and you have to understand that. And while you want to help people, and that's our goal, to do the best job we can, because that's really all we do, right? We, we're problem solvers. People come to us with a variety of challenges. They either need some you know, they need a statement from somebody or they need records or they need something to help them with that problem, video surveillance, mm-hmm. uh, something. And we provide it for them. We be creative. We go out there, use our experience to get it. Well, you have to understand that there is value to that and that you deserve to be compensated for it. And, you know, I teach people, the, thing, the way I teach people to approach that is ask, what's your budget? Do you put it, put it on the client? Do you have a budget for this? And get, mm-hmm. get them thinking about money right away so that they know that, that this is a business for you. For you you want to help. But, and that's what I tell people. I say, listen, I'm busy, and I want to help you. but Because, um, you know, you, I'm sure you get it too. People call and they say, well, I don't have resources. And, exactly. And we all handle those things differently. Sometimes I'm, I'll, I'll modify my rates uh, because I'm interested in the case or – um, I want to help the person or I'm doing a favor for somebody. But other times I'm like, listen, I can't help you. This isn't a hobby for me. If I'm going to be in my office, right. I'm going to be getting paid for <laughs> exactly. it. Right. <laughs> yeah. so. Bill, hang on, hang on to that. We've got to take a quick break. We have so much more to talk about. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You bet. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com IRB Focus, created by IRB Search, brings together the best data in an entirely new system. New features and data, all in a responsive format, gives professional investigators a better tool to close cases. The just-launched Connections Network even gives secure opportunities for collaboration and job referrals. Learn more about IRB Focus at irbsearch.com or call us at 1-800-447-2112 to get started. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Private investigator Bill Hunt is my guest today, and we're discussing transitioning from law enforcement to the private sector. Bill, let me ask you this. When somebody, a colleague of yours, comes to you and said, I, you know, I'm thinking about retiring. What do you think I ought to do? I'm thinking about private investigation. What do you tell them? Where do you go with that? Well, the first thing I do, <clears throat> at that point in time, we're, you know, we're dealing with getting them licensed, right? So I kind of walk them through the process, the types of things they need to think about. Like, for instance, what type of business entity um, are they going to be? Are they going to be a sole proprietor or they want to be an S-corporation? You know, talk about the different tax advantages that are available. Like, I made a practically every mistake you can make, right? I ran it through my initial time through the BSIS, and I went through as a general practitioner because I didn't know any better, or as a... Um, not a general practitioner, but a um, sole proprietor. Mm-hmm. And I realized almost as soon as I'm up and running that if I, that if I had uh, run it through as a corporation, I'd have better tax advantages uh, with mm-hmm. regards to, you know, taking shareholder distributions and that stuff, which helps you down the road. And I didn't realize that. And I had to go through the whole process again with the BSIS uh, Let me just say, uh, Bill, BSIS is the Bureau of Investigative and Security Services for people that are listening that don't know what that stands for. Correct. That's the body that that uh, regulates private investigators and, um, you know, PPOs and everybody else. So, it's, you know, what I do first is get them to understand the process because a lot of people think it's, you know, it takes a while, and particularly with the um, the shortages in, in uh, the budget shortfalls here in the state, They've cut uh, staff throughout the state. And when I went through, I, you know, I, from start to finish, I think it was two months, and I got my initial license. Well, it can take several months longer than that now. So I get them to think, first of all, if you're thinking about it, start preparing now. 
And then also preparing for the test. A lot of um, a lot of people make the assumption that the test is an investigative test. And while there are questions relating to actual investigations on the test, as you know, a lot of the test has to do with um, the BSIS regulations governing the industry, right? Mm-hmm. You know, right. Uh, you know, uh, talking about if you have to have a qualified manager and when do you have to notify them if you change your address and all these different regulations that you wouldn't otherwise pay attention to. So mm-hmm. get, them, you know, get them oriented on how to approach the test, make sure they study it properly because a lot of people don't pass it the first time. Mm-hmm. And investing the time, read the book that they send you and you know, take it seriously because it's not just investigative techniques that they talk about, although there is a, some component of that in there. And then I get them thinking ahead as to what type of business do you want to run? Um, because, you know, taking advantage of those tax, taking advantage of the opportunity to keep more of your money by having the right business entity is important. And, you know, I, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a CPA. But I tell them, hey, yeah, th- this is what I have. These are the reasons I have it. You might want to talk to your accountant about it. And if, they don't, if your accountant doesn't know about you know, the advantages you can get from a corporation, then you need to get another account. I mean, you come from law enforcement where you're, you know, there's only certain things you can deduct. You can go to anybody to get your taxes done. I mean, when I was mm-hmm. with the sheriff's department, I did it through TurboTax, right? Right. I bought the disc and plugged my stuff in and handled my own taxes. Well, with your own business, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, For sure. So, and if you have employees or if you're working with contractors, then there are certain things you need to know and you need to make sure you report your taxes properly and so on, which is a whole other ballgame. So getting them to understand that having your own business isn't just about the work. I mean, <laughs> that's almost ancillary, right? It's setting it up, making sure that you have the right uh, legal setup to, for the state making sure that behind the scenes you're set up. You know, that's the other thing I tell people. In business for yourself, you know, it used to be you went to work and you handled your job. Well, now you have to do the work. You have to do the work to get the work, which is your marketing. And then you have to do the work to support your work, which is your invoicing, your bookkeeping, your record keeping, all the things you need to do behind the scenes. Uh, A friend of mine I was talking to about this. I said, look, when you're with the sheriff's department and you get a transfer or promotion to another assignment, you walk in and you've got an office and you've got a secretary and there's a a supply closet and, you know, all of these things, this infrastructure set up behind to make you you successful. In business, if I I need a paperclip and I haven't gone to Staples, (laughs) I don't have a paperclip, right? Right. Or or if my secretary or... my staff hasn't hasn't taken advantage of it or, or taken the opportunity to do that, or if I hadn't pre-thought of that, then, you know, then I'm at a disadvantage. So, and that's the other thing I teach them. You have to, a lot of cops, they want to make sure everything's perfect. I can't tell you how many guys I've, uh, I've mentored where they're like, well, I'm going to wait till next month because I need to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm gonna, I need to have this set up. And, I, and it's almost like they, they want everything perfect before right. they go. Yeah. And I tell them, listen, you need a basic plan. It's never going to be perfect. Exactly. It's never going to be perfect. And, the only, and, and it's almost like they're worried. They don't want to make mistakes or they're intimidated by the process. Say, look, the only way you're going uh, to learn is to get your basic business set up, get some business cards made, 
go out and start getting work. And in the process of doing that work, everything else is going to take care of itself. Because once you complete the work, you're going to have to invoice. Or you're going to have to, prior to that, get a retainer, which means you're going to have to set up your QuickBooks. And you're going to have, all of these things will take care of themselves. Exactly. So it's basically getting, getting established, getting licensed, setting up uh, your basic business operation, and then go to work. And everything else will take care of itself. You know, that's such good advice. And you're so right. I think, I'm, I think whether you're in law enforcement or not, many people are, get paralyzed to begin with. <laughs> that paralysis exactly. keeps them, because that's why they want to keep fixing something else so they don't have to actually launch the business like you think they should. And, you know, we find, I find that sometimes myself. You end up uh, sitting around in the office. You can get sucked into emails and, and returning oh, yeah. phone calls and, you know, uh, file management and those types of things. And I actually, what I found that I had to do, I mean, I used to be, I would answer, my, my phone rang, I answered the thing. And, you know, if you're in the middle of a report or, uh, you know, you're taking care of something on a, on a particular case, that interruption, it isn't a simple matter of handling the call and hanging up and getting back right where you were. It, no. it typically takes longer. You have to just remember where you were, get set back up, and then get going. And so what I've done is I've kind of created, sometimes it helps me, sometimes it hurts me, but I answer uh, phones in the morning, my messages in the morning, at lunch, and in the evening. And during Mm -hmm. the rest of the day, unless I'm in my car driving around or something and have time, I don't deal with my phone calls because I can't. You just keep interrupting yourself. So, you know, getting a discipline structure, understanding that it's give and take, and you have to set up something that works for you, and... And if you can't get to it today, then you can't get to it today. But my experience has been, particularly once you've developed a business and you have clients, if something's coming in off the Internet and you don't get to it right away, then they're typically going to go on to the next investigator. And you may lose that work. But Mm -hmm. I've found on the other side that my clients will wait for me. Uh, People that are repeat clients that I've done work for before, if I don't answer the phone right away or don't go back to them until tomorrow morning, then that's not a problem. So it's worked out okay for me. No, it sounds, I mean, it sounds logical. As long as you're returning the call within the same day or or as soon as you can, uh, I think most people accept that today. Yep. So so do you talk about the differences in procedures, Bill, when you talk to... People that are coming out of law enforcement that, you know, the things that you can do in the private sector, that you can't do in the private sector, that you can do in law enforcement. Do you discuss that at all? Yeah, of course. I mean, a lot of that has to be learned through experience. There are a lot of things that apply. Uh, Just some uh, certain things come to mind right away, like in in surveillance. You know, when I worked uh, in narcotics in the sheriff's department or when I was supervising the gang unit, you know, we did a surveillance on somebody. We had three, sometimes four cars out there. And, you know, if you lost them, no big deal. We all went to lunch, and we picked them up the next day, right? In, in this business, if you rarely have more than two uh, people on a surveillance. It's and, that, actually. And it, exactly. And there's pressure involved, right? If you lose, I mean, you're going out there and, and taking money from a client to follow somebody, and if you lose them, there's pressure. You've got to call them up and say, hey, I lost him. And, I'm, and I tell them, listen, educate your client, right? When I call people up and they want to surveillance, I tell them, look, this is how my personal uh, policy on this is. If it's, a, 
if it's a stationary surveillance, in other words, we're watching a business or, you know, a house and we're trying to determine who's coming and going, fine, I can do that with one person. But if you got me following somebody in Southern California traffic, I'm going to require two investigators, so I'm not going to take the surveillance because I'm wasting your money right. in a couple of different ways. Number one, if somebody takes a right turn at a busy intersection in Southern California, you lose them. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of us charge a minimum for surveillance because of the time it takes to ramp up, get your equipment ready, charge all your batteries, get your cameras ready to go, and get out the door into the uh, start of the surveillance. And then you lose them 15 minutes into it. You know, that's not worth the client's time and money. The other thing is, when you're typically when you're on a surveillance, it's not just a matter of watching somebody and documenting what they're doing, but you want to obtain video or photo evidence of who they're meeting with or what activities are involved in that sort of thing. And it's very difficult to do that while you're driving. But if, yeah, but if, for sure. or if they park and go on foot or whatever. So if you have two people, it gives more opportunity for somebody to be in a position where they can video, the other person can watch the car, get out on foot, do those types of things. So I think if you, people a lot of times will say, wow, I, I don't know if the client will go for it. And I say, well, then explain to them what you're trying to do and what the advantages are to them. And while it may seem twice as costly on the front end, the reality is you're going to get the, the work accomplished quicker and it's going to cost them less. Absolutely. So educating the client is important. Yeah, I mean, you have to go back to that client. They're paying you good money, their hard-earned money, to do this surveillance for them. And you, and you call them back and tell them you just lost the person. You right. know, they don't care why you lost them. <laughs> they just yep. care they were lost and you didn't and, you get know, results. And, you know, it's unavoidable. I mean, you're going to lose people. And the other thing is don't lose your head, right? If you've done surveillance for a while, you know, I've known people that have lost people and they call me up and they're like, ah, you know, I'll have a, a subcontract. They're, they go, I lost them. And, you know, typically the advantage with surveillance is people are typically creatures of habit, and we all have a small world. And once you identify, particularly if you've been on somebody for a little bit of time or if you have information, then they say, well, check here or check there. Don't panic right away. Try to pick the car up again or go back mm-hmm. to the next location. And, and you don't always need to let your client know you lose them, particularly if you can pick them up again, mm-hmm. you know. Right, yeah, so exactly. It's, it's just a matter of experience and, and, and following through and educating mm-hmm. your client so that they have realistic expectations because we've all dealt with the client that, you know, that, that doesn't understand some of the problems you deal with when you're out there in the field, whether it's on surveillance or if you're doing, you know, an interview on a criminal case or a civil case and they expect that the witnesses or victims are go- or the person you're interviewing is going to say A and they say B, that's not our fault, right? Right. I right. tell them, hey, I can't, I can't, um, guarantee what they're going to say. What we do is we guarantee the effort, which means we're going to go out and we're going to talk to them. We're going to provide your attorney or your representative with a realistic understanding of what they're going to testify to. And you need to deal with that reality. It may not be what you like, but that's what they're going to deal with. That's what you're going to be facing when you go into court. And your attorney needs to be armed with that so you can make the right decision. So, Bill, you you mentioned criminal cases. What do you say to your former colleagues when you're conducting when you're you're conducting criminal defense cases? You know that is a great question. There are there's such a you know there's such a a bias, a loathing, if you will, in in law enforcement for people who work criminal work. You know, going to the other side, going to the dark side, quote unquote. Right. And you know, I for me, it's never been there. You know. I, 
I might be somewhat unique in that I never took the stuff personally when I was a police officer. I, I wasn't one of these guys who followed up on cases if I went to court calling the attorney to see if they get convicted. or You know, I, I realized what my job was, and I went out and did it. And if I had to go to court and testify, I went and testified, and I got on with my life. And I didn't take the stuff personally. And the same thing when I became a police officer, a, a private investigator, I was started being approached by criminal defense attorneys, and they'd ask me if I'd if I would be interested in doing criminal work, and I was like, sure. I mean, because for me, private investigations is no different from public investigations. We're trying to get to the truth. That's what we're trying to do. It might be coming from a different perspective. And what I tell cops is, listen, number one, it's not always about who's right or who's wrong. I'll give you a perfect example. In in California, we have a domestic violence statute, 273.5, which states if anyone's injured during a domestic violence, then the other party's arrested. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it goes. And a lot of times that takes discretion out of the hands of the police. And they may not have all the facts at the time. Like I had an incident where uh, my client, the male party, um, came, he was at home and his wife came home and she was drunk and they got a fight and she ran out of the house and fell down on the gravel driveway, skinned her hands and feet. There were witnesses to that. He got her tucked into bed. Next day he gets up, goes to work. She wakes up, calls the police, said he pushed her in the driveway. They didn't talk to anybody else. He wasn't there. They arrested him. While he was at work, she went and withdrew all his money out of his business account (laughs) and took off. And so... I went and talked to the family who witnessed this thing, and, we, and that's a mitigating fact that they didn't have, right? They, all they had was the victim. Exactly. They took her word for it. And that's the other thing, too. First one of the cops went. That's almost the rule. So a lot of times I'll get people say, well, the cop's lying, the cop's lying, the cop's lying. It's not that the cop is lying. It's that they believe the victim. Mm-hmm. And if somebody gets to the police officer like this woman and appears credible, then they take... Uh, her at her word, and they're looking at the other person as a suspect right from the beginning. Should that be the case? Not always, but oftentimes it is. And in this case, we were able to demonstrate that, hey, he didn't push her at all. She fell on her own. There was no, no domestic violence. And we actually got char- charges filed on her for, you know, stealing the money out of his business. Oh, interesting. So interesting. In that case, if we didn't have somebody else take a look at that case, then what do you got? You got... You know, you have a lying witness who, who's really the, 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 I mean, it was a false police report, right? So I try to get them to understand that, look, number one, you don't work for that entity anymore. So if you want to hold, if you want to uh, spite your business by turning off one whole area of potential uh, revenue that you have, 10, 20, or 30 years experience in. So it's easy for you. I understand criminal work. For me, criminal work, like family law, for example, I do a lot of family law cases. They all scramble my brain. I don't understand half the time what they're fighting over, right? But I get criminal law. It's easy for me. And, and it, that was one of the challenges for me. People call me up and say, well, I want this. And I'm, I'm like, what's the point of that? I need it for my family law case. And I'm like, why would you need that? Well, it turns out that they do. That what, what's <laughs> the, the type of information that's of value in those cases is completely different than, than what might be needed uh, to prove or disprove a case in a criminal case. So you have yeah. to, that was one of the challenges I had to learn is, hey, 
the client's always right, right? If that's what the client says they need and it's legal and ethical for me to obtain it, then, you know, if I'm going to take the case, that's what I'm trying to do. So getting people to yeah, understand you know, that. And Bill, I was, I was un- me- I'm sorry. Go I, I was just going to say, I was meeting with a homicide detective um, one time and he, we talked about what we need to talk about. And then, then he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And he said, how do you do this? <laughs> Meaning criminal yeah. defense. And I said, well, you know what? I said, first of all, I'm dealing with one person at a time. I'm not out in the streets. I'm not dealing with everybody that you deal with on a daily basis, every day, day in and day out. I'm dealing with the one guy, the one case. And I said, and you know, sometimes people are actually innocent. And he yep. said, not murders. <laughs> well, you know, that's true. <laughs> you know, besides the fact that the, the other thing, they, a police officer could be absolutely right in what they do. They could have probable cause and they could arrest somebody and book them. But the standard in court is not probable cause. The standard in court is beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, right. And as you know, jury instructions do not read like the penal code. Right. For whatever reason. So that's the other thing to get. That's when I'm, when I'm uh, working with somebody who's doing criminal work from law enforcement. I, that's what I tell them. I say, listen, you understand it from the perspective of, of a cop, and that helps you when you're evaluating police reports. It helps you when you're interviewing witnesses, finding areas that may have, uh, may have not been investigated thoroughly or information that might not have been asked that could be helpful. But in court, it's a whole different ballgame, as, as, as you know from your time in law enforcement. It's not oftentimes the way things are presented in court are nothing like the way they happen out on the street. But the standards are different, and the information that's presented to the jury is different. They may not have all the information that the police officer gets, or they may get more information that the police officer didn't consider and didn't have to consider. And that's what we do in criminal work, right? A lot of it's mitigating, finding information that can help the client, maybe to reduce the, the, uh, the charges, or yeah, maybe, which maybe I, it was overcharged to begin with. Ex- you know, that's the point I was going to make. There are so many times that the DA just overcharges, and it's ridiculous. And in that case, we can be helpful by getting the district attorney, or if not the district attorney, the jury to understand that this, you know, the charges, uh, you know, it's overcharged. That what happened uh, doesn't meet that standard, and maybe it meets a lesser one, and that helps the client. That was the voice of Bill Hunt that was telling you all about how he handles talking to colleagues when he's mentoring them to go into private investigation. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. IRB Focus, created by IRB Search, brings together the best data in an entirely new system. New features and data, all in a responsive format, gives professional investigators a better tool to close cases. The Just Launch Connections Network even gives secure opportunities for collaboration and job referrals. Learn more about IRB Focus at irbsearch.com or call us at 1-800-447-2112 to get started. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations 
When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program is about transitioning from working in law enforcement to running a private investigation agency. My guest, Bill Hunt, formerly a lieutenant with the Orange County Sheriff's Department, is with me as the guest. And we were just talking about um, the idea of working criminal defense in the private sector versus being law enforcement and and the bias that exists uh, oftentimes. But um, I was just wondering, Bill, what, what actually surprised you the most? You know, honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, I was kind of thrown into this thing, and I, I, I did it, you know, it's kind of like I do everything in life. I jumped in with both feet, and I just got working, and, and I was lucky. So, um, you know, I worked around the, the criminal um, law area forever, obviously being in law enforcement, so there aren't a lot of surprises there. I mean, things are different from the other. I'll tell you this. I guess here's the thing that surprised me. Two things. When I was a police officer, there was such a stigma associated with criminal defense attorneys or bail bondsmen. Those are two people that you just you look down your nose at, right? You didn't you didn't uh, associate with. You had a a low opinion of. And I'll tell you, some of the attorneys I work with are some of my best friends uh, now, and I just they're businessmen, right? And most criminal defense attorneys. Although there are some that are idealistic and really believe in their case and are advocates, most of them, they have a realistic understanding of what happened, and they know when their client's, quote-unquote, good for it, right? And their job is to, mm-hmm. is to mitigate it or hold their hand until they can accept reality and, and deal with the thing right. And that was a big surprise for me because, you know, you thought I'll, I, I always was under that impression, particularly when I started doing criminal work, that they were going to ask me to do things that make, require me to compromise my integrity and that right. never happened and I wouldn't do it anyway which is the other thing right. I tell cops it's like listen as we like we spoke on the break when I'm out doing criminal work I'm not getting people to falsify statements or you know lie or present information that's untrue all we're doing is going out and talking to people and, and getting more information that may or may not be helpful in the case and if you do that 
if you if you're if you conduct yourself with integrity and uh, which you need to do when you're in business because your reputation's on the line then you know what some cop who has an institutional bias because they don't understand what you do, that's not your problem. You don't work for them anymore. They're not your client. When I, for the 22 and a half years, uh, I worked for the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and they were my quote-unquote client, right? They're who paid me. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. got 100% of Bill Hunt's effort, experience, and integrity. Well, I don't work for them anymore, and I don't owe them anything. I owe my client, and I give them the same 100% effort uh, every time. And so that's well- important. What and a great statement that is. What a great statement that is, Bill, really. Because I, I think that's, if we, if we're, yeah, if we're all doing that 100%, and we don't always do it every day, but if we right. did that every day, day in and day out, we would have a lot of happy clients, and we would have a lot of great cases and experience. Exactly, and you'll have more work than you can handle, and I'm a perfect more example of that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, and I tell people that all the time as well, that, you know, for people that do good work, there's always work available. Always. Yep. yep. And it really helps with your marketing budget because you don't need to market if you do good work uh, over a period of time because you get repeat clients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, I'll tell you the thing that surprised me most. I came from a lay layperson, not from government. But the thing that has surprised me both, most about uh, private investigation or, or attorneys is there's so many attorneys that are, have very high integrity. I'm, right. And I'm talking about criminal defense attorneys. And I know there's people listening that say, oh, come on, give me a break. But it's true. Abs- you know, it's bad apples out there, those people that will compromise their ethics no matter what. But yep. the attorneys I've worked for have amazing integrity. And, you know, and- Francie, the same is true, sadly, with law enforcement. I, I mean, I talked about a department I worked for where the sheriff, the lead person uh, who you would expect to have the most integrity, is now sitting in federal prison. So yeah. it's... You know, that's what I try to get people to understand. You can have, you can, police of all people should understand what generalities are. And you know what's funny? They sure hate it when people generalize about law enforcement, right? <laughs> right. I mean, they, they hate to be, it's funny, they hate to be criticized, and they, but, but they're willing to do it to others. In the, in, but ironically, you know, like in my case, you, you don't always, you're not guaranteed that career is going to go on forever. And there are a lot of people who find themselves out of law enforcement sooner than they thought and end up in this career. And they need to, they need to come to these understandings. Now, there are uh, guys and gals I know who retired and don't want to do criminal work and, and have great businesses to work in for Absolutely. insurance companies or doing surveillance or doing Absolutely. sub-work for other people. And that's your choice. But, if you, but what I tell them is, listen, you have experience in that area. You can do that work with integrity, and you can make good money doing it. And you may not want to do expert witness testimony, for example. That makes some people uncomfortable. They don't like to testify. They don't want to be in what's considered a openly confrontational uh, position with law enforcement. Then fine. Criminal investigative work, for the most part, doesn't involve that. You're going out behind the scenes. You're talking to people. You're writing reports. You're submitting them to the investigator or, or to the attorney on the case. Uh, so that they have more information so that the client can make uh, the best informed decision as to how they're going to, you know, how this thing's going to get resolved. And that doesn't require a confrontation with law enforcement. So it's, it's getting them to understand that. Did you can, it's your business. You pick and choose what you want to do. But if you're going to do it, do it with the right attitude and the right approach. And, and like you said, you'll find sometimes, believe it or not, people are innocent and they were 
uh, charge. And, and I could tell you yeah. story after story on that. And in those cases, I'm really thankful I got involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's an eye-opener, really. It's a, it's a definite eye-opener when you run into that and you say, oh, my gosh. <laughs> this is, yep. Yeah. I mean, I, ha- I had a case. It was on the show, Johnny Williams, that was convicted 14 years ago of uh, uh, molesting a little girl, and it turns out he was innocent, and I worked on the trial case. Yeah. And 14 years later, he was exonerated through DNA, and that was a heavy hit for me. It was like, okay, what did we do? Where did we go to wrong, and what didn't we do enough of? Yep. I'll tell you, so, I, had a, I, I got a call one day. I don't know how much time we have, but just a quick story. I got a call one day. I was actually sitting in the class, Brandon Perrin's criminal defense class out mm-hmm. in Ontario. One of my uh, attorney uh, clients called me and says, hey, I got a case. And he's like, my guy's good for it. Him and his buddy were out. They jumped some black guy outside of 7-Eleven. They're charging with hate crime and all this stuff. And he goes, you know, the only thing is they're 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 – they're making this guy out to be a gang member, and he's a Jewish kid. He's just that he's balding early, and he's got a shaved head. So I go, no problem. I'll, get, I'll handle it. So I get out to the scene, and I talk to the client initially. He's like, look, we were just out. We walked to the 7-Eleven to get some beer. I walk out of the store. This guy pulls in, almost hits my buddy. My buddy flips him off. He jumps out of the car and challenges us. I said, this guy challenges four of you guys. And he's like, yeah. And he goes, we didn't even fight him. We were trying to prevent him from fighting us. I mm-hmm. said, okay. So I go to the 7-Eleven, the video, it happened around the corner, so the video didn't cover it. And I look, I stand in the parking lot, and I look across the street, and there's an apartment building right across the street. So I walk across the street, I start knocking on doors. I, I contact a lady on the second floor, and she says, oh, I think my uh, so-and-so up on the third floor um, was the one that called this thing in. No problem. Mm. So I go up there. He wasn't home. I left a card. He calls me back. I said, hey, I'm still in the area. Can I come talk to you? He says, sure. I come back. Turned out this guy, and you talk about relationships, and because we're not, we don't come with the authority of a police officer, right? Where people mm-hmm. are kind of compelled right. to talk to you, <laughs> right? So, I noticed there was a picture of a uh, LA sheriff lieutenant on on his dresser. I said, "Hey, who's that?" He goes, "That's my dad. He's retired LA sheriff." I said, oh, "I'm retired Orange County." Well, he happened to know of me from the campaign, ah. so right away his attitude changes because initially he doesn't want to talk to me. Um, but here was the story. He says, man, he goes, I wake up, there's a commotion on the street. He says, I look down, there, in, there's one black male of four white males. One of the white males appeared to be restraining the black male who was going after the one of the white males. He says, now, I don't know who was after who, whatever. I said, was there any racial uh, component to this at all? He says, well, the only race thing I ever heard related to race was when the police pulled up and he was talking to the police. He said... Uh, the white dude stole my wallet. That's the only thing I heard. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out that this guy completely made up the accusations. His wallet wasn't stolen. He was the aggressor. He was trying to fight these guys, and they were just trying to get away from him. Wow. And I asked him, I said, did you tell the police that when you called it in? He says, absolutely. I said, what did they ask you? They asked me who appeared to be the aggressor. I said, what did you tell him? He says, well, I don't know, but it appears like the black guy is. I called yeah. up the police department involved. I said, I want a copy of that, uh, that 9-11, 9-1-1 tape. They dismissed the charges. Oh, so, good. Yeah, and, you there know, you go. kid, 21 years old, yeah. charged with robbery, hate crime. He would have been screwed for life if we didn't. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, it's, those circumstances come up every once in a while, and when you get a case like that, you know, you're glad you do it. Now, granted, yeah, a lot Bill, of times... We, excuse me, Bill. 
I'm getting notification that we get, we're at the end of our show and we have to finish up. So I am sorry. This could go on for a couple more hours. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining the show today. It was a great story. Join me again, folks, next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Bill Hunt every Thursday morning. Uh, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. Bill, thank you. Thank you a lot. This is a great show. It was my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.